0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and/or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part four of our ongoing series, Erotic 80s
1: I'm getting a little fed up at sexually emancipated ladies being referred to as bras I'm not doing this because somebody's making me do it do you hear that strange girl being a naughty boy last year he was discovered making amateur videos of his own sex robbers man. Oh, man. has been a remarkable change from sex equals sin. Everybody
0: we right. Today's be episode yeah, is about 1981, but we're going to start in 1944. This is what movie sex sounded like then.
1: There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90.
0: Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket.
1: Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it.
0: That's a clip from Double Indemnity, probably the most impactful entrant in the Hollywood genre that flourished in the mid-1940s that was dubbed by French film critics, film noir. Last week, we talked a lot about Paul Schrader, who had been a film critic before he began writing movies like Taxi Driver and directing films like American Gigolo. And in 1971, he published an essay called Notes on Film Noir. Three years after the end of the production code, Schrader was examining the classical Hollywood genre that perhaps did more gymnastics than any other to subvert that code, finding ways to transmute both post-war sociopolitical tensions and sex into storytelling elements that passed the code, if sometimes by the skin of the teeth. Schrader made a bold prediction that 25 years after its golden era, the genre could make a comeback. As the current political mood hardens, Schrader wrote, film goers and filmmakers will find the film noir of the late 40s increasingly attractive. The 40s may be to the 70s what the 30s were to the 60s. And the 70s did bring on a mini boom of what would come to be known as neo-noirs. Films like Chinatown and Night Moves, which used tropes from movies of the 1940s to capture the sense of futility of fighting back against a fully corrupt system. Schrader was writing pre-Watergate, those movies were made after. By the early 80s, with the Reagan revolution in its honeymoon phase, the hardening of the political climate felt like a fait accompli, and a number of filmmakers, Schrader included, returned to films of the 1940s, making remakes with their eyes trained on the flip side of the coin. Politics were seemingly pushed aside in favor of sex which, of course, in 1981 and today, is political. Schrader's film in this mini-boom, his 1982 remake of the 1942 low-budget Val Luton-Jacques Turner masterpiece Cat People, substituted the original's themes of xenophobia for a visually stunning phantasmagoria of incest and bestiality, which suggested that, for the true outsider... There is no assimilation, only captivity. But since we've already talked a lot about Schrader, today we're going to focus on two movies that preceded Cat People, both released in 1981, and both directed by men who, like Schrader, had helped to redefine American movies in the 1970s. Bob Rafelson and Lawrence Kasten were born on opposite ends of the so-called movie brat generation. Rafelson fed rocket fuel into the new Hollywood as the producer of Easy Rider and director of Five Easy Pieces. Kasdan marched in at the back of the parade, co-writing Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. In a sense, both had been significantly influenced by classical Hollywood movies, For Rafelson, they were a model to defy by bringing a rawness and naturalism to the screen that was borrowed from European cinema but made uniquely American with the help of his production designer and wife, Toby Rafelson. Kasdan, who got his gig on his first Star Wars movie subbing for the recently deceased Lee Brackett, who had written noir and westerns for Howard Hawks, built his career on films that borrowed a grab bag's worth of tropes from classical Hollywood cinema, redressing those tropes for the modern blockbuster audience. As the 80s dawned, Rafelson and Kasdan were both at a crossroads. Rafelson ended the 70s getting fired from directing the Robert Redford film, Brubaker. He was an undomesticated rogue who was only going to work in an increasingly corporate Hollywood again if someone gave him a second chance. Kasdan had co-written two of the highest-grossing movies of all time, but as a director, he was untested and unproven. Almost simultaneously, these two filmmakers made the decision to get over these humps in their careers by putting their own stamp on a 40s noir and taking advantage of the new permissibility offered by the rating system to illustrate what double entendre-laden films like Double Indemnity had talked around. This episode is about how these two films, released in 1981, The Postman Always Rings Twice and Body Heat, approached the idea of updating film noir to include realistic sex, how they played into the personas of stars Jack Nicholson and Kathleen Turner, how they challenged even the relatively liberal standards of what could be depicted in movies of the 80s, and how and why they were received extremely differently. Join us, won't you, for part four of Erotic 80s. and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, Head to netsuite.com slash remember, netsuite.com slash remember, netsuite.com slash remember. Bob Rafelson is one of 20th century cinema's great talkers. Not that you can believe everything he says. When Postman went to Cannes, Jessica Lange complained to him about the grind of having to do interviews all day long. It's easy, Rafelson told Lange. All you have to do is change your story every time. According to Lange, when Bob talked to journalists, he would. But even the barest verifiable facts about Rafelson's career are pretty impressive. Years after getting fired from his first job for flipping over the desk of super agent Lou Wasserman, Rafelson directed Five Easy Pieces and King of Marvin Gardens, and his company BBS produced The Last Picture Show and the Oscar-winning Vietnam documentary, Hearts and Minds. Later in the 70s, Raifelson gave Arnold Schwarzenegger his first real movie role in one of my personal favorite films, Stay Hungry. Rafelson's movies are like no one else's, and Stay Hungry may be the most Rafelson movie of all. The method behind the finished product was pure madness. The movie climaxes with a big fight scene set in a gym, Rafelson refused to shoot this scene with props or stuntmen, whose choreography he deemed phony. We used real weights, he later said. You can tell because when the character throws them down the stairs, the stairs break. I know exactly how to cover it in a shot so nobody can get hurt. In today's Hollywood, this would not only be considered extremely dangerous, but illegal. Rafelson's desire to really do the thing he was filming manifested again in making Postman. To figure out how to block a crucial shot in which Lang falls out of a moving car, Rafelson made his girlfriend drive his car on the beach with him in the passenger seat and swerve at high speed so he could practice falling out. According to a 2019 Esquire profile, he practiced this 20 to 30 times. He didn't need to punish himself this way. Hollywood was happy to punish him enough. In the spring of 1979, Rafelson began filming Brubaker, a a based-on-a-true-story prison film which Rafelson had prepared for by actually spending time behind bars. But his outlaw nature came back to bite him on this one. A week into shooting, a Fox executive started snooping around the set. When the exec told Rafelson they needed to have a meeting about your career, Rafelson got physical. The exec claimed Rafelson hit him in the head with an ashtray. Rafelson claims he just grabbed the guy and let him go a little forcefully. In any case, Rafelson was fired and then given a standing ovation when he walked into Dan Tanna's. To studios, Rafelson was now persona non grata, but to other directors who are also chafing against the newly ascended studio system in the late 70s, he was a hero. Rafelson's friends stood by him. He and Jack Nicholson went way back. They playfully took credit for each other's careers. They met in what Rafelson called, quote, a screening room for strange, foreign, forbidden films in Los Angeles. And when a scene came on that somebody liked, this one person would stand up and scream and yell and wave his fists. Yes! And I did the same thing, but I didn't know who that person in the dark was. Of course, it was Jack. In the years after that meeting... Rafelson created the scaffolding that gave Nicholson a career by hiring him to co-write the Monkeys movie Head, to co-star in Easy Rider, and to take center stage in Five Easy Pieces. In an effort to get Rafelson back to an environment in which he could do his best work without studio interference, Jack asked Bob to direct a movie that he'd been trying to make for years a new adaptation of James M. Cain's novel, The Postman Always Rings Twice. Postman had been the basis for a classic film noir of the same name, directed by journeyman par excellence, Tay Garnett in 1946, starring John Garfield as the drifter who makes the fatal mistake of hooking up with cool blonde Lana Turner. Garnett had moved the book's action from the Depression to the current day, and had been forced to elide much of the novel's sex and violence in order to get a production code seal of approval. As Nicholson put it, quote, the Lana Turner-John Garfield version was a classic, but at the time, they couldn't really do the book. He wanted to do the book. Rafelson said that when Nicholson approached him, he got a print of the 1946 film, but Turned it off two thirds of the way through, satisfied that Kane's novel had not really been filmed. David Mamet, then a playwright who was making his screenplay debut with this adaptation, didn't watch Garnett's film until he was deep in rewriting his own version. Mamet found it to be quote very emasculated. It uses all sorts of late forties and fifties sign language for sex and violence. For anything that's a real expression of emotion, it's rather uninteresting that way. Nicholson, Mamet, and Rafelson were united in thinking it would be more interesting to bring Kane's themes of sex and violence to literal life. Nicholson was on an incredible run. Postman was sandwiched in between The Shining and Reds. Forced to pick projects, sometimes years before the movies would be seen by audiences, he said he tried to predict the zeitgeist of the future. When Easy Rider was released, he would say, he realized he was, quote, locked right into the sociological curl like a surf rider. And I found I could stay right in there, ride this, and cut back against it. I like to play people that haven't existed yet, a future something, a cusp character. He chose The Shining, he said, because he was feeling that the, quote, most volatile element in our culture is the pressure inside the family unit. As for Postman, he had long believed that sexual repression could be a killer. If you look at the real facts of your life, you'll find if you're not releasing your sexual energy, you're in trouble, he said in a 1972 Playboy interview. His internal crystal ball told him that 1981 would be when the culture at large was ready to join him in talking about how our hypocritical taboos on sex could drive a man to murder. Jack was the reason Postman got made, the reason Rafelson got the job, and his star power was such that the director was able to get away with casting the least likely choice as his co-star. Jessica Lange, born in rural Minnesota, had been a mime in France and a model in New York before she was chosen to play the Fay Ray role in Dino De Laurentiis' remake of King Kong, which was a hit, but Lange's damsel-in-distress role got her typecast as a bimbo. And though sometime boyfriend Bob Fosse had thrown her into all that jazz, by 1980, her movie career was going nowhere. When Rafelson became interested in her for the part in Postman, she was performing in a play in North Carolina and was spending her nights, by her own recollection, drinking too much in her motel room. Rafelson visited her in that motel room and she let him stay while she received an after midnight phone call. He was struck by what he called the sensual way she sat while on the phone. She didn't cross her legs like 90% of the actresses You think you're looking for something sexy, he said. She was sexy. He flew her out to LA and videotaped her auditioning postman sex scenes. In these taped auditions, according to a New York Magazine profile of Lang, Rafelson himself played the Nicholson part. In that same article, Nicholson described Lang as like a delicate fawn crossed with a Buick. Rafelson, Nicholson, and Mamet were united in the goal to make the adaptation of Kane's novel that Tay Garnett couldn't make in 1946. That meant setting the new film during the Depression, as opposed to the moment of post-war boosterism that Garnett milked for irony in the 1946 version. In both films, the drifter Frank considers taking a job at the rural gas station after catching a glimpse of sexy blonde Cora, played in 1946 by Lana Turner and in 1981 by Jessica Lange. In both films, Frank rethinks after learning Cora is married to proprietor Nick, but while in the first film we get the sense that Frank is a fundamentally good guy who doesn't want to renege on a promise... In Rafelson's version, it's clear already that Frank is a manipulative piece of shit. It seems that Nicholson's Frank ultimately takes the job because there is little possibility of anything better around the corner. When you and everyone around you has lost faith in the future and the present offers you the possibility of illicit sexual adventure, where else are you going to go? Nicholson would say that their movie quote, isn't about relationships. It's about sex, and the core of it is the suddenness of the sex, of the desire between these two characters. The Turner-Garfield version is also about sudden desire, and it might even do a better job of dramatizing how this sudden desire takes Frank and Cora by surprise and changes them into different people. That version, so infused with 1940s Hollywood optimism, allows the viewer to imagine that there could be a better life for both of these people, if they could just get there. Rafelson's has none of this classical Hollywood magical thinking. With the exception of a brief interlude towards the end of the film in which Nicholson's real-life girlfriend, Angelica Houston, not yet a movie star, plays an exotic animal tamer, Every choice Rafelson makes is towards gritty realism. Everything that was once glossy is now drab, dirty, and frankly unpleasant. This extends to the movie's first and most famous sex scene. Frank approaches Cora violently in the kitchen where she's baking bread. She fights him off, pushing him away until she doesn't. He lays her down on the butcher's block right alongside a knife, which she could grab and threaten him or stab him with, if she didn't really want this. Instead, she clears the block to make room for them, throwing dough, loaves of bread and the knife to the ground. We then get as graphic a shot in a movie with Hollywood stars since Last Tango. The camera holds for nearly 30 seconds, in an extreme close-up on Lang's panties, as one of his hands and both of hers move in to rub. Her full coverage, 1930s-style undergarment cannot fully contain her pubic hair. The scene doesn't stop there. Cora ultimately gets on top and apparently rides to orgasm, but they never take off their clothes and nothing in the film will feel as shocking as the curls of pubic hair visible for nearly half a minute. Rafelson later claimed this shot almost got the film an X rating. After consultation with the MPAA, the studio asked the director to remove it, but Rafelson connived to keep it in. Quote, I said, well, just darken the print and they won't see any of the hair. And we did. And when the picture was released, we lightened the print. Nicholson was determined to bring even more realism to what he wanted to make sure was the naughtiest film ever made. The script for this scene and the production design had called for Nicholson to slam an open window shut before the pair got down to business. The actor told his director, quote, are you out of your mind? You think I'm going to shut a window when I've got this woman laid down there and I can see she wants it? He won that battle, but lost another. He wanted to be filmed in this scene with a real visible erection. In his words, a bulging railer tenting his pants. He claimed that he asked Rafelson to provide a prosthetic erection, but Rafelson thought he was kidding, so Jack showed up on the day of the shoot expecting to have a dildo to stick in his pants, only to find out that no such prop had been created. He claimed Rafelson told him, well, geez, if you're so red hot about this, go upstairs and see what you can do there. Jack said he tried, but experienced performance anxiety. The 1946 postman Always Rings Twice, of course, had to play much coyer games in order to get away with less. In the equivalent scene in that film, when Garfield aggressively grabs Turner and kisses her, she doesn't say no or resist. She lets it happen, and then when it's over... She makes a big show of fixing her lipstick while he stares, enraptured. This version elegantly shows us that Cora is the one who is really in control, while the Rafelson version keeps showing Frank fighting for domination. The 1981 Postman not only has more sex than the 1946 version but it's done in such a taboo-breaking, graphic way that it can't help but elicit a reaction. Nicholson told Rolling Stone that a friend of his went to a screening, and when he came out, he said, Shit, I haven't had a hard-on in a movie since I was 18. Still, the sex is so sudden and so frank that it's hard to feel the vibe between the two characters. In The Old Postman, the pair dance in front of her husband, their faces inching towards each other with magnetic force until she can't take it anymore and breaks and unplugs the jukebox. Then they go to the ocean for a swim, an innocent frolic which has the impact of softening the relationship, making it seem like something more than pure adulterous lust. In Rafelson's version, it's all fear and loathing, and their sexual bond hinges fully on danger. First, that he could physically hurt her. Then, that her husband will catch them. Then, when they decide to get rid of the husband and they stage the car accident that kills her husband, they have to beat each other up for verisimilitude. The murder, followed by the fist fight, turns them on more than ever. Rafelson was asked about this scene and why previous directors approaching the Kane text didn't film it the way he did. Certainly, Lana Turner did not walk around for the next act of the movie with a black eye, the way Lang does here. And Rafelson said, quote, I don't give a fuck about the other directors. What do they know about making violent, dirty movies? This is why I made the movie, because they didn't do it. It's a book about sadomasochism. In the 1946 film, by the time they get away with murder and are supposedly free to be together, Frank and Cora hate each other. But the quality of this hate is muddled by director Tay Garnett's inability to be explicit about what kind of relationship the two are having now that Cora is single. That movie transfers all of her hunger onto a post-war appropriate ambition to quote-unquote be something and elevate herself above her dead immigrant husband or her drifter lover slash accomplice, who she now sees as dead weight. Rafelson's version is better at exploring what happens to a relationship once the obstacles, the danger, is supposedly gone. His, Frank, and Cora pick drunken fights with one another in order to ratchet up the intensity of sex. At one point, he raises his head from between her thighs and she spits in his face. In both films, the denouement involves the same kind of final danger. Learning that Cora is pregnant with his baby, Frank finally has something to lose. And then he loses it. He accidentally kills her and the baby in a car crash. And this is where Rafelson makes what is probably his most significant major departure. He ends the film with his male protagonist weeping over the body of his female protagonist before Frank can be tried and executed for Cora's murder. Now, Garnett's film ends with a truly bizarre scene in which Frank accepts his fate happily as the karmic and cosmic accounting for his misdeeds and also explains the movie's title, because MGM. But Rafelson's change takes the story out of the realm of crime-doesn't-pay allegory, and instead centers it on an abusive man finding redemption, and then losing everything all at once. I changed the ending of the book, Rafelson said, because for me, the most tragic thing that can happen to somebody is not to go to prison and be hanged, or be in jail for the rest of your life, but to lose the person you love the most in the world. It was, Rafelson said, a tragic love story. Rafelson's ultimate sentimentality in turning Postman into a film about lost love seems to go against Nicholson's initial impulse to adapt the novel, as well as a theme he stated while promoting the film. To some extent, he needed to have sex on screen to legitimize his persona as the most sexual man in movies. I've always allowed for that element in my public image to be, to some degree, overstated because it's good for business, he would say much later. The idea of Jack Nicholson, the sex symbol, had grown virtually organically. Despite the fact, as he admitted in doing press for Postman, he hadn't done a lot of sexual acting before making that film. I grew up knowing that Jack Nicholson was considered sexy, that I was supposed to find him sexy, but I never felt like I fully got it. He wasn't for me, and I am still not sure I totally understand why he was supposed to be. I wasn't alive during his peak attractiveness, The first Jack Nicholson movie I saw in a theater was Batman, although my parents had Chinatown on VHS, and I'm pretty sure I'd at least been in the room while they were watching that, and maybe Terms of Endearment, too. But another guy of the same generation that I knew I was supposed to be attracted to was Warren Beatty. And by 1989, I got that one. Interestingly, the only movie in which I have actually been attracted to Jack was Reds, directed by Warren Beatty. And when I watch that film, I'm more attracted to Nicholson than I am to Beatty. I wasn't the only one who thought Nicholson didn't look the part. Interviewing Rafelson about Postman, David Thompson commented that Jack was, quote, really giving up the notion of being appealing-looking, The director concurred. Quote, On the one hand, it's courageous, and on the other, quite self-destructive. But Jack has a complacency about the leading man attitude. It's the same thing you see in Orson Welles and Marlon Brando. At a certain point, they didn't give a rat's ass. If anything, it's that attitude that's the sexiest thing about him. In any case, It was interesting to research this episode and come across some of the ways in which Nicholson has been written about over the years as possibly the most sexually successful straight man in Hollywood of the second half of the 20th century. If he has a rival for that position, it is Beatty, but Beatty doesn't like to talk about his personal life on the record nearly as much as Nicholson does. And so with Nicholson, you have these long magazine profiles from as recently as 2006, calling him the great seducer and declaring that, quote, all of Jack Nicholson's life has revolved around sex in one way or another. It swirls sex all around him constantly, if not in his bed so much as before, then in his head always. The same profile also has Nicholson offering long and not totally scrutable answers to questions about his history of impotence and one about whether or not he wears condoms, which begins with him admitting, it's always a problem. You can't feel your wanker. Based on how he was written about over a span of 40 years, Nicholson seems to have become a sex symbol first and foremost, because there was evidence that many women wanted to have sex with him. In 1981, when Postman was released, Nicholson appeared on the cover of Playgirl. The inside story was not an interview, but an essay by David Thompson, which begins with a fantasy scenario in which after, quote, the grisly coincidence in California of Holocaust and geological upheaval, future generations were able to unearth Nicholson's fossilized body for study. The fossil of Nicholson, its outline nearly luminous with a mixture of cocaine and volcanic dust, was found spread-eagled in what may have been a pleasuring room. Several unidentified female fossils were discovered in the same area in postures of abandon. Crucially, especially in this day and age, there have been no public reports that I'm aware of that Nicholson violated women who didn't consent to be with him. Most reports suggest that there was no such thing as a woman who didn't want to be with him. Angelica Houston's memoir documents that he was unfaithful, their relationship on again, off again for most of two decades, ended when he impregnated someone else, but it also indicates that every heterosexual woman he ever met pretty much found him irresistible. I think he brings this to Postman, and it gives the character something the original film doesn't really have. We understand Nicholson's Frank as one of those guys that, for better or usually worse, can just get it. A guy who might not have a place to live, except that he always finds a woman's bed to sleep in. Maybe you've met guys like this. Maybe you've woken up one morning and realized that a guy like this was living with you. John Garfield was very sexy and his own unique for his era sex symbol, but he was desirable in a different way. He never made you feel like he was using sex to get to some other end. Because Nicholson does, Rafelson's movie becomes something truly different than the Garfield version. It's a movie I don't like much while I'm watching it, and then days later realize I'm haunted by it. Like it's a bad dream I was lucky to wake up from. Critics in 1981 didn't much like watching Ravelson's Postman either. And unlike me, they didn't have the luxury of time to reflect before they filed their copy. Expectations were high. The advance word on the movie held that it was, to quote a GQ profile on Nicholson, the first film in a long while to match the erotic tensions of Last Tango in Paris. Critics were expecting a cataclysm, and once they saw the movie, it couldn't live up to the advance billing. Both of the major trade reviews of this film were stunning for different reasons. Robert Osborne, later the god of TCM, reviewed for The Hollywood Reporter. His review notes that while the first adaptation of Kane's novel was compromised by, quote, the tightly censored movie market of 1946, now that the screen is more permissive, the decision was made to redo the hot C narrative as Metro, Lana, and Garfield couldn't, using crotch shots, pubic close-ups, animalistic gymnastics, and including Kane's famous sex-on-the-kitchen-table scene, something revered by horny schoolboys for years. But, and it's no pun intended, a big but, Quote, this new, freer postman is curiously tame. Nicholson and Lang make love but never sizzle. What's missing is heat and power. Except for a couple of sex scenes utilizing bounce and some semi-pornographic camera intrusion, even grandma will find little to complain about. This postman is no more daring than, say, a Myrna Loy William Powell movie with a couple of beaver shots thrown in. End quote. I am not making this up. In 1981, Robert Osborne wrote beaver shots in The Hollywood Reporter. The Variety review might have been even more surprising because it veered far outside the realm of criticism Even the commercially minded criticism native to Variety, to report gossip about Ravelson's battle with the ratings board. The review was subheaded, A Lot Lost Between X and R. The lead, quote, Today's Hollywood status symbol is to have seen some of the hot sex scenes not allowed into the final version of The Postman Always Rings Twice. Unfortunately, the paying public won't be privy to the footage left on the ratings board floor. It goes on, and I'm going to quote at length. This is the picture that director Bob Rafelson said he would shoot as an X and cut to an R, but he reportedly had a lot more trouble than expected with the rating system, and the final result falls far short of being the sexiest major studio release with top stars. Since nothing stays a secret for long, Hollywood is known for some time the action Ravelson actually shot between Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange. But the final cut is limited to some fairly heavy groping, explicit shots of Nicholson massaging the front of her panties, and a view of his head between her legs, suggesting more than it is ever witnessed. There is no frontal nudity, and the language is relatively mild. If that's enough to turn on today's sophisticated audiences, Paramount and Lorimar may still have a commercial hit, If not, they may have trouble with no more than a well-acted, beautifully filmed version of Kane's basic story, which Rafelson has altered for the worst. In the book, their sexual abandon reaches its peak in the moments following their murder. Given the expectations, this should have been the film's wildest scene, too. And supposedly, that's how it was shot. Would you believe it's now little more than a kiss and a cutaway? End quote. In 1981, almost a full decade since there had been a single X-rated mainstream hit, the industry's mouthpiece publications were chastising a maverick director for promising hardcore and then playing along with the industry organization that was designed to find a happy medium between pushing the envelope and making money. And it wasn't just the trades. Vincent Canby in the New York Times complained that Rafelson's film lacked the quote vulgarity that is the essence of Kane's fiction. When Mr. Nicholson's Frank has his way with Miss Lang's Cora atop a flowery breadboard in the back of the diner, indulging in sexual practices that might even have surprised Kane, the pictures on the screen are not only uninvolving, they are Sad to report, tasteful. Canby went on to negatively compare Jessica Lang to what he cited as her analog in hardcore porn. Quote, Miss Lang's low voltage sexuality recalls Marilyn Chambers, the classy, suburban looking pornographic star whose performances are essentially surprising reminding us of an earlier time when nice young ladies were not supposed to know about such things, much less do them with enthusiasm. Miss Chambers demonstrates sex as someone else might demonstrate a new can opener. There's no heat in what she does, as there is no heat in Miss Lang's performance here. Whatever appetite there was in American culture for this film was apparently extinguished by these kinds of reviews. In America, The Postman Rings Twice was completely rejected, Rafelson said later. It only played for seven days, finished. And yet, just a few months later, another neo-noir and highly eroticized quasi-remake of a classic, open to rave reviews and big box office. After the break, why body heat succeeded where Postman failed. In making their version of The Postman Always Rings Twice, Rafelson and Nicholson insisted that they were going back to the James M. Kane source. And were not remaking the 1946 movie. Lawrence Kasdan, however, freely discussed his film as his own postmodern version of Double Indemnity and other 40s film noirs. Here he is talking about this in 2012.
1: Well, that's how I feel about Double Indemnity and Out of the Past. These body couldn't exist without those movies. They electrified me. I loved the way the people talked in them. I loved how duplicitous the characters were. I loved how wised up the sensibility was, and I tried to put that into Body Heat, and I ripped it off, all those movies off, you know, just shamelessly. And, um, <laughs> but it was great fun. It was great fun coming up with my version of it.
0: I think it's Kasdan's reverence for the movies he's self-consciously ripping off that made Body Heat more commercial in 1981 and makes it more fun to watch than Postman today, even though I'm not sure it's as rich in terms of what it's saying. Body Heat is an unmarked remake of Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity. Both films are about a cocky man who thinks he's falling into a hot affair with a married woman, only to come to realize he's the mark in a plot to murder her husband so she can walk away with a big payday and he can take the fall. Like Nicholson and Rafelson's Postman, here William Hurt plays a guy whose single superpower is being able to have sex anytime he wants. A man who has never contemplated a sexual situation in which he wouldn't have total control. In both cases, a challenge becomes a novelty that makes the sex hotter. So in Postman, in the absence of further challenges, once furtive sex turns into S&M. In Body Heat, Hertz Ned becomes infatuated with this woman because unlike every other he's apparently ever known, she's hard to get and dangerous to be with. They are fuckboys out of their depth. But the obvious difference between the two films is that Body Heat makes its sex look like fun. It's every bit as seductive as American Gigolo, and their male leads are tapping a similar vein. Certainly, they're wrapped in similar tropes. Like Gears' Julian Kay, Hertz' Ned Racine drives a convertible, smokes evocatively, works out and displays his tight body. A big difference is that Ned's seduction method is so aggressively verbal. Here he is talking to Kathleen Turner's Matty on their second meeting, after he's basically stalked her to her neighborhood bar. Most men are little boys.
1: Maybe you should drink at home. Too quiet. Maybe you shouldn't dress like that. This is a blouse and skirt. I don't know what you're talking about. You shouldn't wear that body.
0: At the end of this scene, she invites him over to her house her husband is out of town, ostensibly to listen to her wind chimes. He's sure this is an invitation to sex, but instead, she gives him a quick kiss and then locks him out, telling him she's too weak to be around him. They stare at each other through glass doors. Finally, he grabs a chair and uses it to smash the glass to get into the house and take her. Lest we doubt this is consensual, we audibly hear her say, yes, and please. Then Kasdan cuts away from them fully clothed on the floor to post-coital in bed, the sheet level with Hertz hip bones. Kasdan cuts away with her reaching under the sheet and stroking we still haven't really seen anything yet. Though we understand they've had sex, the film has sustained its erotic tension. Then, the next time we see them together, they're in her boathouse, fully naked and wet with sweat. And she's not satisfied yet.
1: Give me a break here. It takes a little while. It's your own fault. (laughs) I've never wanted it like this before. It was everything else out of whack. It takes me a good 30 seconds. Are you sure? I just want to be sure.
0: At the end of the clip, Mattie's hand reaches below the frame to lead Ned back to bed. And the implication is that what she's holding on to is not his hand. This is a movie in which the woman first plays hard to get and then actively pushes the man for more. And that's exciting. Maddie's voraciousness wasn't something that the audience could be jaded about in 1981. Another thing they couldn't be jaded about were the gorgeously lit and filmed actually naked bodies of Body Heats 2 stars. They weren't movie stars yet when they were cast. William Hurt had only appeared in one movie, altered states. He went to meet Kasdan at a hotel room in New York, which Kasdan recalled in that interview from 2012.
1: And we talked and talked, and Bill and I both drank a lot, and (laughs) we continued to talk. And the next day, his agent called and said, Bill really wants to be in this movie, but he wants you to get rid of the murder. So that was a decision moment for me, which is, we said, are you out of your mind? It's impossible. This is this is what this movie is about. And uh, they called back and they said, well, he'll do it anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen Turner had done some stage and soap opera acting, but hadn't made a movie. She was brought in to read several times. After one cold reading, Kasdan said... I never thought I would hear that out loud exactly as I hear it in my head. This was a big break for Turner, but one that she said absolutely scared her. Quote, I didn't have an image of myself at all as this siren or sexy woman. I thought that might eliminate me right away. I never saw myself as a sort of femme fatale. It makes sense that she didn't see herself as a femme fatale. When she read the script... She was only 25. And as she put it, I didn't have that much experience sexually, personally. And yet, on set, quote, Here we were, clinically discussing the best way to look like you're going down and giving head. I felt very much torn in two about this. Both embarrassed and excited. Very professional, yet totally amateur. At the last minute, Kazden decided to shake up the shooting schedule to begin with the most challenging material to shoot. So they shot the boathouse scene, in which Hurt and Turner appear fully nude on Turner's first day, which was her first day on any movie set. In this scene and many others, the actor's bodies glisten with sweat from the hot and humid Florida summer. The shoot had been delayed by an actor's strike, and by the time the cameras rolled, it was winter. It was so cold that Turner and Hurt had to put ice cubes in their mouths in between takes so that steam didn't come out of their mouths on camera. So, obviously, there was movie magic at play. But even while describing how carefully her sex scenes and body heat were choreographed, Turner broke from press junket convention by acknowledging that it wasn't all make-believe. After shooting Ned and Mattie's first sexual encounter, she said, I ran upstairs to my dressing room and I was shaking and shaking and crying and I just sort of broke down. I did that after almost every one of the heavy scenes. It's just too open. The truth is you can act sexuality to a certain extent, But if you are actually being touched, actually touching someone, there is a gray area there because your body is responding. Even though your mind is saying, okay, now the camera is there. So you're thinking that stuff, but you're also having physical reactions because nobody can be petted, touched, and kissed without feeling something. I think that was the effect on everybody. The interviewer asked her what happens when actors get too turned on. And she responded, I'm not really sure you can get too turned on. I think there's an automatic safety valve that is simply your responsibility technically as an actor. If you get too turned on, you start rolling around and you're out of shot. In giving this interview, Turner broke a taboo that had long been in place in terms of the way actors talked about sex scenes. And it's notable that she gave it years after the release of Body Heat and not as promotion for the film. Turner had been prepared for there to be some attention given to the sex and body heat, as she later said, we realized we were making a film that would not just push but open the envelope in its realistic treatment of sexuality. On set, she recalled, you would catch the crew grinning at one another because they knew something very good was happening. Turner would later say that when she first got the job, I had big doubts about whether we could hold the line between being dismissed as sensationalistic sex or being seen as a groundbreaking film. The risk to each of us was substantial. We had to believe Larry would keep it on the right side of the line. He did. But she was not prepared for how fully people would assume that she was the femme fatale she portrayed. Before the film was even finished, Turner was confronted by her agent, who happened to be her ex-boyfriend. The agent said, I hear you are having an affair with Bill and with Larry at the same time. Turner felt this accusation like a sock to the stomach. How could you say that? She asked her agent ex-boyfriend. He responded, I just think you should know what people are saying. In the aftermath of the movie's release, Turner would find that her introduction to the film going public and to film critics as a sexually voracious con woman was hard to shake. The reviews of Body Heat were mostly fabulous and instantly established Kasdan as an important director. I can't remember a film debut to equal it. That is, when a director has made a first film as fully and intelligently realized as body heat," wrote Vincent Canby in the New York Times, noting that rarely have moments of passion been presented on the screen with such fleshy eroticism, although always framed discreetly enough to safeguard the R rating. The Hollywood Reporter dubbed Kasdan, definitely this year's directorial discovery. Playing a quote-unquote monster, the critic allowed that Turner carried the major burden of the picture, and she's tremendous in her film debut. Attractive and intelligent, she can also be enormously sexy and convincingly devious. Variety acknowledged the ways in which body heat was both something old and something new, calling it, quote, an engrossing, mightily stylish Mellor in which sex and crime walk hand in hand down the path to tragedy, just like in the old days since there hasn't been a good entry in this basic genre since Chinatown. Public's appetite for a suspense laden with steamy atmospherics is difficult to gauge, but fact that Pick delivers the good should guarantee a certain audience. Note the qualifier, Good. Later in the review, the industry's leading trade publication made it clear that Kasdan's movie had pulled off something Rafelson's had not. However familiar the elements, Kasdan has brought the drama alive by steeping it in humid, virtually oozing atmosphere by corrective examples showing how the recent version of Postman went wrong. The heat of the title is palpably evident, both mundanely in the weather and in the irresistible attraction of the sexy leads. Sexual scenes are quite frank and convincing, and there are at least a couple of provocative moments, the likes of which haven't ever been seen before in a mainline R-rated American feature. Box Office Magazine also used its review of body heat to disparage Postman. Quote, The two actors deliver a magnetism only hinted at in the recent Postman between Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange. The outlier was Pauline Kael, who eviscerated body heat as a 40s pastiche that verges on camp but takes itself straight and wrote one of her most misogynistic takes on Kathleen Turner. The most embarrassing thing a performer can do is act more sexy than he or she appears to be, Cale wrote. And Kasdan has led Turner into this trap, but she's so remote that she isn't even embarrassing. If we felt this siren enjoyed her perversity and control, as Barbara Stanwyck did in Double Indemnity, there'd be some humor at least in her ensnarement of the lawyer. Or if she had Stanwick's smeary mouth and cheap, teasing way of rubbing against her fall guy, there'd be the suggestion of zingy, nasty sex. Pauline Kale was maybe the only person to watch Body Heat in 1981 and not feel the suggestion of zingy, nasty sex. Roger Ebert thought she was so off the mark that he wrote a whole thing defending Turner against Kale's criticisms. Quote, Kale is unfair to Turner, who in her debut role played a woman so sexually confident that we can believe her lover would be dazed into doing almost anything for her. The moment we believe that, the movie stops being an exercise and starts working. I think the moment occurs in the scene where she leads hurt by her hand, In that manner, a man is least inclined to argue with. Both Body Heat and Postman would inspire debate as to what the role of women could or should be in film noirs made in an era in which women expected to be treated like human beings. The March-April 1981 issue of Film Comment included several articles about Postman and in one critic Dan Yakir suggested that the film violated Kane's intent because Lang's character had been rewritten from a cunning femme fatale into a victim of both her husband and lover for the sake of quote an 80s feminist view never mind the fact that in empathizing with a downtrodden housewife whose frustrations lead to secret sex and murder, Postman Moore embodies the worst-case scenario of the feminine mystique published in the early 60s. Even in film comment, it was implied that an 80s feminist view had no place in film noir. This point of view was articulated more directly by film historian Foster Hirsch in his 1999 book on neo-noirs, Detours and Lost Highways. He wrote that noir remakes tend to, quote, reveal a lack of confidence in the genre's traditional treatment of women. One of the now standard ways of modernizing stories conceived in and for the classic period is by rewriting female characters. Some of the remakes contain traces of a post-feminist consciousness. And while the shifts may appease the captains of political correctness, they have in every case proven bad for noir. The genre's two customary representations of women, the femme fatale and the patient wife, resist ideological tampering or adjustment. Indeed, the impact of many classic noir stories depends on women remaining in exactly the place their original authors assigned them. He specifically scapegoats Jessica Lange for embodying what he calls the contaminating post-feminist influence in three noir remakes. In Postman, Hirsch writes, Lange's sensitive, tremulous performance only reinforces the immutable noir logic that a femme fatale cannot be humanized. I would argue that Ravelson's Postman doesn't even really try to present Cora as a femme fatale. It can't, because who would believe that Jack Nicholson could only kill because a woman seduced him into it? In any case, the original noir films couldn't humanize femme fatales because the only way they passed the production code was by ensuring that characters like Barbara Stanwix paid with their lives for their crimes, crimes which sometimes amounted to not much more than excessive sexuality. Society of the mid 20th century punished sexually aggressive women too, although its rules were enforced perhaps less consistently than Hollywood's. Still, If society in the 1980s was paying lip service to the idea that the old rules for women had changed or should change, shouldn't the rules governing femme fatales change too? Hirsch liked Body Heat better because he felt Turner better embodied James Cain's concept of a ravenous, depleting female sexuality, the embodiment of male castration anxiety. In short the exemplary praying mantis. These types of reactions, and the press that would follow Turner for years, which we'll talk about more in a later episode on another of her 80s movies, suggest that what the noir audience wanted, what they were used to getting from Hollywood movies, was for a woman who liked sex to turn out evil. Body Heat's real innovation was that Matty didn't die. And I think that's a huge reason why Body Heat was more successful than Postman. In Rafelson's film, so many of their encounters begin with his aggression towards her. We're led to believe she likes this sex, but she only seduces him through antagonism. This dynamic is more difficult to identify with. It's not as immediately sexy. Also, Jessica Lange is very beautiful, but she's styled aggressively naturalistically. We've been conditioned to see Jack Nicholson as a sex symbol, but objectively, he's a middle-aged, doughy guy. In Body Heat, Kathleen Turner is forever in full glam hair and makeup. Hurt is young, 31, tanned and in shape. He wears fitted shirts and jeans, when he's wearing any clothes at all. And Kasdan shows us as much of him as he does of her. If pubic hair was the big boundary broken by Postman, it's a boundary both actors glide over in Body Heat. Postman is so gritty as to be unpleasant. The close up on Lang's panties is also a close up on Nicholson's fingers, which are caked with dirt. In that film, the couple talks of escaping their squalid surroundings, but there's no vision of where they could go to that would be better because there is nowhere to go. These two can only exist together in these kinds of circumstances. Body Heat allows the viewer to dream about a getaway and also suggests that the sweaty, Furtive coupling that's the only option until these two can be together out in the open is not a bad way to spend time. Body Heat glamorizes. And in that sense, it does exactly what film noirs and other movies dealing with sex of the production code era used to do. Rafelson's Postman pushes the viewer out of their comfort zone. Body Heat takes a form and language that the audience is familiar with and adds nudity. What's not to like? Kathleen Turner summed it up in an interview with Playboy in 1986, after romancing the stone had turned her into one of the most bankable actresses in movies. Looking back on the movie that had thrust her into the spotlight, she gave Body Heat credit for being the rare film to portray what she called good adult sex. As of 1986, she could only name one other film from that decade that even tried to do the same. There was The Postman Always Rings Twice with Jack and Jessica, but I didn't like the sexuality in that. You watched these two people do things to each other. It was so brutal. Even though Body Heat did well at the box office, it became a classic of sorts thanks to the rise of video stores where a box cover designed to imply sex could all but guarantee frequent rentals. People were starting to get used to watching titillating material at home, which would ultimately be bad for sex in movies. But in the short term, it caused a wider variety of movies about sex to get made because the reasoning went that they could always make money on video. Next week, we're going to talk about another home video classic containing a scene that, if you didn't know better, you might think was created to make the most of the rewind button. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth That's me This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks If you like this show please tell anyone you can any way that you can you can follow us on Twitter at rememberthispod and we're on Facebook and Instagram too. And if you go to our website, you must rememberthispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition. Dead Blonde's Coloring Book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night,